Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me for a special Halloween-themed episode is horror expert and film professor, Ryan Terry. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing tonight, Ryan? Ah, thank you very much, Mati, for having me back. I'm really excited to be here to get to talk about my favorite subject of horror. And it seems like uh, only yesterday we had uh, sat down uh, previously. So I'm, uh, I'm really delighted to be back so soon. Uh, so thank you very much for thinking of me. I'm hoping you're having a very happy Halloween season. Uh, and so uh, that it just uh, hope that you make the, the very, uh, very most of it, because uh, pretty soon we're going to go from uh, spooky tales to singing jingle bells. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> before you know it. <laughs> yeah, I really couldn't miss the opportunity to have you back for a spooky themed episode, especially I just learned so much when we dove really deeply into Midsummer last July. If you haven't listened to that episode, definitely do that. It's it's one of my favorites. Was it July? Has it been that? Has it been that long? I think it was July, right? Oh, I guess it, it, it was like early it's July. A t- time really flies. Yeah. So this week, things are going to be a little different than the traditional episode. We will be doing the first and hopefully not the last in a series of what we're going to call decade marathon episodes, where we break down our top films from a given decade. So today we'll be running through our top five horror films of the 1990s. So here's how it's going to go. Ryan and I will take turns counting down our top five films starting at number five. And in the likely case of overlapping entries, we'll discuss the film the first time it appears on either one of our lists. And then I'll also add a disclaimer here that these are personal subjective lists and that particularly in my case, I have not seen every single horror film of the 1990s. In fact, I've actually seen very few, which we'll talk about in a moment. But Ryan, even though he's much, much more versed than I am, it's a subjective list. So it'll be really interesting to see how they're different, but just keep that in mind. Um, And then as for spoilers, for the most part, we aren't going to be intentionally spoiling any of these films. But given that they are at least 20 years old, almost 30 years old in some cases, I think it's safe to say that spoilers are a fair game for any and all entries on the list. And I will provide timestamps in the show notes for each film in the event that, you know, you want to skip a section if you're really risk averse to that specific film or whatever. And as a final note, uh, we'll be skipping the usual point two section to give us some more time to discuss these films. So with that, Ryan, I wanted to start by asking you a question. Um, I came to you with the proposal for a Halloween-themed episode, and you were the one that suggested the 1990s as a good decade for exploring horror. So why is that? What about 90s horror was so enticing to you? Well, I mean, because we talk about 80s horror so much. And mm-hmm. I mean, rightly so. That was a huge uh, decade for the genre. It was, It grew massively in popularity that is when entire franchises were spawned with friday the 13th halloween or of course that was 78 but uh uh, you know alien 79 but then you know elm street 84 uh you know friday the 13th was 1980 uh we had uh you know stephen king's pet cemetery in 89 we have the shining in 1980 as well this was a huge decade for the genre and it gets talked about all the time. And I love mm-hmm. it. But what doesn't get talked about as often are the horror films of the 1990s. And there's some great horror gems during that decade. There's also a lot of crap. <laughs> but we have great films, Oscar winning films. And yeah. in, um, in the case of at least one of them, uh, actually two of them uh, that I can just think of right off the top of my head. 
So uh, it's a decade that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, and it's certainly more interesting than the early 2000s. The early 2000s, so 2000, 2009, that is a crap decade. There's not a lot of good horror films that are made during that time. But here in the um, in the 2010s, and it's really more specifically in the mid to late 2010s, there's been another revitalization. So I'm sure the 2010s or the mid to late 2010s will be a horror genre a decade that is talked about 20 years from now. So what I what I so that's why I selected the 90s because there's some really fun movies in there, and they don't get the screen time or the air time that the 1980s do. So that's why I wanted to explore it further to uh, to highlight movies that often get overlooked. On that note, like I don't think I'd seen when you suggested that I was like great. But crap, I need to start watching some 90s horror films because <laughs> I had not seen many of them. Um, and I went through kind of a, a binge on this week. I saw four or five uh, of them uh, in addition to the handful of other ones that I had seen earlier in life. So now I have a, a slightly better understanding of what 90s horror entails. But I'm really interested to see if I picked the right ones, like the best ones, or if there were others that I, you know, little hidden gems that I missed. Sure. So with that, why don't you give us your top five or your your number five? My number five? My number five is I Know What You Did Last Summer. For the last year, four friends have kept a secret. Are you on drugs? No. Well, then what is wrong? I've had a rough year. But not all secrets stay buried. Somebody sent this to me. Oh, my God. Someone knows. I know what you did last summer. Ooh. What they thought would be a new beginning. Toast to us. Is becoming a dead end. Somebody tried to kill you last night. We have to go to the police. If he wanted me dead, he could have done it. And the mistake they made. It was an accident. There was no accident. It was murder. What if he's still alive? Hey! What are you doing here? Is coming back to haunt them. Oh, my God. He's after me, too. I got a letter. I got run over. Helen gets her hair chopped off. Ah! Julie gets a body in a truck and you get a letter? That's balanced. She's waiting for us to unravel. <laughs> the wait is over. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? Okay. So tell me about it. Why is it number five? I This is not one that I've seen. Yeah, I know what you did last summer uh, is one that I feel is largely underrated. Uh, it often gets overshadowed by its predecessor, uh, not not its predecessor, but it uh, it often gets overshadowed by Scream because I know what you did last summer it came out uh, one or two years after Scream, and uh, many uh, thought of it as a knockoff of Scream. So it was just kind of copying what Scream did and just kind of you know moving it around a little bit, changing out a few things, or then largely delivering something that's kind of similar. And that's, you know, that's not the case with uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer. One, we've got a fantastic cast. We've got Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar for Buffy fans. Uh, so we just just uh, just to name a couple. And so uh, we've got a great cast with excellent, excellent chemistry. That's what I love about uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer. I recently reviewed uh, this movie for um, uh, One Movie Punch. Uh, back uh, earlier in the month for uh, Joseph Dobzinski Jr.'s uh, Reign of Terror 2019. <laughs> and uh, I selected it because, again, it doesn't get talked about nearly as much as Scream does. You know, hence why I picked this uh, decade. 
And, you know, personally, this ranks very highly for me when talking 90s horror. And, you know, while it's not seen the legacy and timeless influence that Scream has, there's still a lot to like if you're a slasher fan or simply enjoy the excellent chemistry in this lead ensemble cast. Uh, for instance, uh, we wouldn't have Scary Movie if it wasn't for I Know What You Did Last Summer or Scream. Uh, we wouldn't even have the hash-slinging slasher from SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> but he's clearly taken out at, from the the main antagonist uh, here in I Know What You Did Last Summer. And there's a hidden strength in this story that rarely gets talked about. It's a great psychosocial commentary on perception as reality and the cognitive development of a young adult. Uh, I know I know's real genius is in how it confronts each of the lead cast with questions that all of us ask ourselves, you know, such as simply knowing who we can trust, you know, fight or flight, mm-hmm. you know, varying degrees of self-centeredness. It functions very well as a study of individual teen mental states. And just like the characters in the movie, you know, we, the audience, also wonder who we can trust. And sure, if you think too much about it, it falls apart. But isn't that the case with many slashers? So everything from the twists and turns to the suspense to the red herrings and a murderer screaming, you've got no place to hide, not to mention the classic horror score. It's got a great score, by the way. This is a, a movie that delivers a story that's fun to watch. It's highly entertaining and, yes, even rewatchable. Um, so it looks like it's also written by Kevin Williamson, who did do Scream, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep, yeah, he co-wrote Scream with Wes Craven. Okay, and so is it as funny as Scream, or does it take a, a less satirical approach? It definitely takes a less satirical approach. There is some self-awareness in the movie, not to meta levels like Scream, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it doesn't have quite the punch that Scream does. Scream is certainly the superior film, uh, but this one, it's it should not be you know overlooked. You know, there's a there's a lot that it offers. It has been influential. It did spawn a couple of sequels, which were not as good, but still fun to watch. And uh, the, it, this cast is great, though. I absolutely love the cast. Phenomenal chemistry between everybody and. The uh, soundtrack is great, scores great, so it has a lot going for it, and it, it it has a good twist itself. Granted, it's it's not as clever as the twist in Scream, but it's still a clever twist, and <laughs> so it's one that I you know really encourage people to watch because being so close to Scream, it's you just run you just run right over it, and you it's just you don't you know think as much about this one. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check it out. I kind of forgot that it existed at all. Is there one with Lindsay Lohan <laughs> in it or something later? Oh, I think you're thinking of another uh, more horror adjacent movie that she was in. Uh, I know who killed me. I think that's what you're. That is what I'm of. thinking of. Okay, but and that, from what I've heard, is very bad. Right. Oh, it's terrible. Okay. Yeah. So (laughs) I I guess I've always kind of gotten those mixed up in my head. But so, okay. Ryan's number five is I Know What You Did Last Summer. It's a 1997 slasher film with uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt and Sarah Michelle Gellar, as well as many other people. I think that kind of goes very great into my five. This We are not planning this at all. But my number five is Scream 2 which also has uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yes, it does. Yeah, she was really making the rounds. Buffy, Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer. Like, she was a hot 90s 
uh, I don't say commodity because no people aren't commodities, but she <laughs> was a, a, a property maybe as a good, uh, you know, a, a talent as maybe a better way of putting it, but she was hot. She's popular. She's pretty. She's funny. You know, she had it all, uh, you know, going for her. And, uh, oh, and I forgot to mention that she and Freddie Prince Jr. are still married to this day. Yeah, they're also in Scooby-Doo, which is where I kind of right. remember them from. And <laughs> in the original Scream, of course, you have Matthew Lillard. So I, does Velma, what's her name? Uh, man, what is her name? Who plays Velma? Um, I, I haven't seen I think I only saw that movie one time. Oh, she's Hawkeye's wife. I know that's a horrible way to oh. <laughs> like characterize her. She's a fantastic actress. Uh, she's also in Bloodline. Uh, oh, Linda Cardinelli. Cardellini, sorry, Linda Cardellini. Oh, Cardellini, yes. Yeah, yeah. So is she in a horror movie that you can think of off the top of your head to kind of complete the uh, Scooby-Doo gang? I can't think of one <laughs> off the top of my head, no. Okay. Well, anyways, complete side tangent. Uh, Scream 2, I thought, I watched both Scream and Scream 2, and I really liked both of them. I thought Scream 2, it's violent, it's delightful, it's very sarcastic and cheesy. I really like the way that it kind of tongue-in-cheek jabs at horror film tropes and cliches and then just obscenely embraces them and shows why they're horror tropes and why they're effective. Uh, I really like how it pokes fun at the original film, especially with that opening scene. I think one of the funniest parts of the movie is watching a a woman kind of yell at the screen about, oh, this is what I would do in this given situation. Like, you know, oh, this the person's acting stupid like we all do with horror movies. And then in the next scene, she gets killed kind of after pointing out how dumb she uh, the character on the screen is acting. <laughs> I think the cast is great. Um, I really liked seeing Timothy Oliphant. I always loved that guy, so it was great seeing him. I really enjoyed that it essentially did what 22 Jump Street did. It embraced that it was a sequel. It, there's a lot of characters that talk about you know the best horror or the best sequels to other films, so they talk about Terminator 2, things like that, and they also have kind of rules that a horror sequel has to follow, and then the film right. does follow it. I thought that was really great. Uh, overall, I think this film is really good that's why it's on my top five list it's just not as good as the original scream and that's always a problem with sequels i think for this one because it embraces the similarity to it it's a little harder to separate them and not compare one to the other so whereas in the first one for example i thought the finale really amped everything up i was really excited when the finale kind of turned on and you it revealed who ghostface was in this one, I felt like, okay, I've seen this before. It's it's a little played yeah. out. I think that the new villains are not as interesting as the old villains. But I mean, other than that, you know, there's some very clever and gruesome deaths. And there's at least one death that happens in this that I did not see coming at all. So Scream 2, I really enjoyed. And I think it's a great cast. What are your thoughts on it? Well, uh, uh, it's not on my list because it didn't come out until uh, 2011. But uh, my favorite Scream sequel is actually Scream 4. Oh, wow. Uh, Scream 4 was also uh, directed by Wes Craven. And so you can see the hand of his masterful work in Scream 4. And I feel it's a great bookend companion piece to the original scream it certainly fits in with the rest of the franchise and it's uh, i it's one i like almost as much as scream scream i still like just a little bit more but scream 4 is a very close runner up 
And uh, then uh, Scream 2 and Scream 3 would be uh, how I would finish ranking them. But uh, it's, I think Scream 2 is a, is a great selection. Didn't make my list, but it's a great selection for uh, for this decade because it did exactly what you mentioned. It owned up to it. It's a sequel, and we've seen this before. So how do we take what we've seen before and make it funny? Well, Scream did it with like the you know, with with the original one. It took what we knew about horror, found the satire in it, and had fun with it. And this not only does that, but it also uh, plays on just being a sequel, and it 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 works very well in the franchise. A lot of fun to watch. I also like Timothy Oliphant. I uh, also uh, I really appreciate that he is still. You know, uh, or at least up until recently, still uh, in the horror genre. Yes. Uh, the horror comedy genre with um, Santa Clarita Diet, which Netflix, if you're listening, you know, fuck shame you on you. For yeah. great for uh, you know, canceling uh, Santa Clarita Diet because the show is brilliant. Yeah, it's one of my favorite shows on Netflix. Yeah. yeah. And it's like it, it was working. There wasn't anything that didn't work about it. And so I like that he's still in it. And, and then there's that connection. We have Drew Barrymore in Scream 1. We have Timothy Oliphant in Scream 2. And now they're on screen together in a horror comedy, Santa Clarita Diet. So I, <laughs> I love how it's just all connected. Yeah. I mean, do you agree that it feels a little more played out than Scream 1? Or do you think that I Know What You Did Last Summer is better than Scream 2, for example? Ah, I would watch I Know What You Did Last Summer before I watch Scream 2, if it, to be not to put too fine a point on it. Right. I, I, I do like uh, I Know a little bit more. Its plot is a little fresher. Yes, it you know has some self-aware elements. And yes, we've seen slashers before, but it, uh, it approaches it in a, uh, in, a, in a fresh way. And so I feel that it has just a little more rewatchability than Scream 2. Scream 2 certainly has the name. Scream has much better branding. So I think general audiences would probably pick Scream 2 over over I Know. Mm-hmm. And this isn't, you know, a criticism of general audiences versus cinephiles. It's just it's just my personal taste. My personal right. taste is I prefer I Know the plot in I Know to the plot in Scream 2. Right. I remember the very first thing that I thought about after I watched Scream 2 was what on earth is Scream 3 about? And it's interesting to hear you say that Scream 4 is the the one that you would rank closest to Scream because I felt that I, I mean, I quickly went to Netflix and checked what the plot summary was for Scream 3 because mm-hmm. I just couldn't imagine this happening again like this poor woman. Um, I was like, there's no way it's the same actress. And it is as far <laughs> as I know. Um so do you think, I mean, I guess you don't, but is there some sort of diminishing return for these Scream series? Have you seen the uh, the TV show? Is that as exciting as these films? Oh, it started out well. It, it okay. has a, had, had a good first season and then it went super downhill. Okay. <laughs> so it was not, not, not very successful. Uh, Scream 3 is generally the one that people like the least. Um, but this the franchise does redeem itself with Scream 4. Like it like Wes Craven comes back to the helm, and this is the last movie that Wes Craven would direct before uh his untimely passing. Mm. You know, just within one or two years after that, I think it was I think it was 2015, I think is when he passed away. So this was um, you know, uh, not long not long after. And it 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 had vision again. 
Scream 1 had a clear vision. Scream 4 has a clear vision. And and yes, I, I like Scream 2 and Scream 3 well enough. Uh, but the, it does finish on a high note. And so I'm glad that the franchise finished on a high note instead of uh, just kind of just sputtering out of existence. Right. It, it, it came back for another home run and... You know, it you know, it gave us uh, what we wanted. Uh, this is the man who uh, Hitchcock may have directed the first modern horror film and followed it up with the the equally brilliant The Birds. But, you know, uh, you could argue that Hitchcock reinvented horror specifically. Uh, granted, suspense, whole other story, master suspense. Nobody disputes that. But in terms of horror, he reinvented the genre really one you know distinct time. Wes Craven reinvented the horror genre, I would argue, at least three distinct times. One, Last House on the Left. Two, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And three, you could say either New Nightmare or Scream. Uh, most people would you would argue Scream was the definitive mm-hmm. you know, reinvention of the genre. So that's at least three times that this one writer-director reinvented the genre. And I was uh, commenting on a tweet that Mike Mike and Oscar put out just before you and I started recording uh, they wonder like who the greatest horror director was, and and I I basically in a tweet summarized what I just told you is that this is this man reinvented it three times. I, I think in terms of that alone, you know, makes him the greatest horror director. Yeah. Um. Speaking of Scream Four, let's move on to number four for you. What's your number four film of the nineteen nineties? Number four is another favorite franchise of mine, Halloween H2O, okay. which gets a lot of hate. But okay. I love Halloween H2O. I don't care that Josh Hartnett has bedhead. I would do him anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, though, I love H2O. In fact, you know, uh, I will die on this hill. I find H2O is a superior sequel to Halloween 2. Wow. Uh, before last year's H4O came out, that's how I ranked them. Halloween, H2O, so on and so forth. Now it's Halloween, H4O, H2O, and then they, they all fall in after that. Mm-hmm. But I I loved it. Uh, this is my favorite sequel in the Halloween franchise. This takes place 20 years later. Laurie Strode is once again played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And of course, her son is played by Josh Hartnett. Uh, they move clear across the country to California, so we take it out of, I think, um, uh, Haddonfield is in, is in Illinois, if I remember correctly. So we move away from Illinois. We're out in California. She becomes the headmistress of an exclusive boarding school where Michael finds her on, you know, you guessed it, Halloween. And so uh, Michael <laughs> isn't the only boogeyman, though, haunting Lori. She is turned to heavy drinking to cope with the trauma. And I feel that this Lori is what inspired the Lori in H4O because she's a heavy drinker in H4O. She's a heavy drinker in H2O. I realize that officially this has all been retconned. But I think there are elements of H2O, which I do see uh, in H4O. Uh, much like I know borrowed from Scream, it's very clear that the writers of H2O reworked the original Halloween movie for the Scream generation. And if for no other reason you watch this movie for Curtis' performance as Laurie, um, a role that she wouldn't reprise again until H4O, she gives it all she's got. She goes full Laurie Strode. One of the things that I think the movie got incredibly right was how vulnerable, how human Lori was. You know, oftentimes legacy final girls seem like quasi superhuman, but not this one. She makes a lot of mistakes. She continues to allow fear and anxiety to all but consume her every moment. And um, 
you know, horror movies aren't, you know, always scary. I wouldn't say H2O is a scary movie. It's a fun horror movie. Uh, and that, and that's what this, that's what this one is. It's a great example of just being fun. It takes the kills to the next level. It's more gruesome. It's, it's gory. You've got a great kill at the very beginning. Uh, JGL gets a, a hockey, bla- a hockey boot and blade through his head. Wow. So a lot of people don't know that's JGL in the, in the, in the prologue. That's uh, JGL. He plays, he plays a neighbor. And this is another really cool thing. In H2O, we have Jamie Lee Curtis, but we also have her mom, Janet Lee, who's the school secretary. And who is Janet Lee? Well, Janet Lee is Marion Crane from Psycho. So you have <laughs> two definitive screen queens on screen at the same time, mother and daughter. And to take it even further, uh, when uh, her mom is leaving the school, walking to her car, she gets into a similar, if not the same car that she was driving in Psycho and the score <laughs> in H2O turns to Psycho a little bit. And if you're familiar with Bernard Herrmann's score, you will notice that there is some of the overture music from Psycho playing in the background as her mom gets in the car and heads out. So uh, you have two staples of horror, two brilliant performers who are in pivotal films. You know, I mean, what are the odds? You know, mother and daughter, of course. uh, Yeah, and here they are on screen at the same time. I've noticed that a lot about um, horror movies is that they're a lot more reflective on themselves, I think, than a lot of other genres. Do you know if there's a reason for that? Well, yes, it's be uh, it's because uh, we're, there's a prolif- there's a pro- proliferation of horror content out there. So mm-hmm. instead of uh, allowing it to to not become cheesy and hokey and predictable, it becomes self-aware. So that mm. way it plays around with what the audience expects. It can drive up the suspense because it knows to delay what the audience expects. Uh, to quote Alfred Hitchcock, oftentimes they never let the bomb go off. So they're going to set something up. They're going to provide the audience with information, but then they're going to deliver something entirely different because then you're constantly on the edge of your seat wondering if what you have predicted is going to happen. Uh, horror is unique in that it's the most creative genre that allows us to exercise our fears. Uh, we can explore society. We can explore ourselves and we open ourselves up to it. It can take us places that no other genre can. And it's to those points that we have that self like self reflexivity, um, in, uh, in the films. It's because it is a special genre. These are special movies and they really contain a power that other movies wish they had, but can't possibly, you know, deliver. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's speaking to H2O. I was definitely expecting this to be on your list. <laughs> so I, I kind of wanted to watch it, but I was a little worried because I had never, I had just, have never seen a Halloween film. Um, it's a huge blind spot. As is, you know, basically all of the horror genre post or pre-1990. But is this a film that you can kind of jump into or do you, does it benefit and almost rely on having the kind of relationship with Laurie from the original and whatever other sequels? You just need to watch the original. So okay. watch the original, then watch this one. It, it doesn't retcon uh, two, three, four. Like it doesn't, I think there's, because this is the eighth one. 
it's a seven or eight. Jeez. It doesn't it doesn't retcon the others, but I think it's a better sequel than Halloween two. Even though Halloween two literally picks up the moment from the first one left off, I feel that this is a better sequel. So in my opinion, watch the first one, then you can watch H two O. Okay, cool. So Ryan's number four is Halloween twenty years later. I think is the actual title, right? Yeah, it's like it's 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 redundant. Yeah. Halloween H two O twenty years later. So we are saying <laughs> Halloween. Halloween 20, 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. So my fourth is a film that I'm kind of, you know, stretching the limits of what horror is with this one, but it's 1991's Silence of the Lambs. You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, spins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job, but never forget what he is. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. I think this kind of, you know, has to be on a film list when you're talking about the 1990s. It might be written in like the film Twitter bylaws or something. But, <laughs> you know... I admittedly, I haven't rewatched this film recently, so I it's, uh, you know, it's a little vague in my mind and that may explain why it's so low on the list as opposed to much higher. This film is obviously excellent. There's not a whole lot I can say that hasn't been said about this film. Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, they're fantastic. The first and only time I saw this was actually, I mean, it's been a couple years now, but it certainly wasn't in the 90s. Um, and I was really surprised by how sparingly Anthony Hopkins is used in the film, especially given the legacy of his character much more than Jodie Foster's character. Yeah, it's like uh, 12 minutes, I think, me, uh, 10 yeah. minutes on screen, 12 minutes on screen. It's a very low number. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, it's This is much more Foster's film than it is Hopkins. Um, and it feels like since then there's been some sort of shift where we like seeing the villains in these horror films a lot more than we like seeing the um, main characters. And again, Silence of the Lambs, not really a horror film. It's more of a thriller with some horror oh, elements. Oh, them's fighting words. It's. Uh, I argue that it very much really? is a horror film. In fact, it's also on my list, but I have it ranked much higher because I have it ranked at number one. Wow. Okay. Okay. So I'm I'm sorry. I did not mean to <laughs> offend. Um. <laughs> You're all right. Actually, I got into a Twitter argument just last week. Oh no. On um on whether or not Silence of the Lambs is a horror film, is it a thriller film? And uh, the the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, it doesn't really. Matter. Yeah. It's it's if all you enjoy mood. it. You enjoy it. However, uh, my argument in placing it within the horror genre is uh, you, is the intent of the director. And that's often what I tell my students. And that's what I tell other people. What differentiates horse, uh, excuse me, 
thriller suspense from horror. Because horror can have suspenseful elements, often does. It can have thriller elements, often does. You know, it right. can also have comedy. It can have romance, too. You know, it, it borrows elements from all these other genres, and a lot of genres do that. So what you have to look at is the intent of the director. Was the intent of the director to thrill audiences, uh, to hold them in suspense, or was the intent of the director to horrify? And there's a lot of evidence in Science of the Lambs who suggests that the director's intent was to horrify. You have a uh, a man creating a bodysuit made out of people. Uh, Hannibal Lecter you know, eats the fa- uh, eats a man wears his face uh you <laughs> yeah. also have these psychological horror elements in the relationship between buffalo bill and the senator's daughter and so there are very strong horror moments that you know to me firmly affix it within the horror genre because the the intent is to horrify audiences there was an intent to scare to frighten and that's mm-hmm. what separates it uh, for me and why I make the argument that it is a horror film. Uh, but, you know, there are there are plenty of people who say, no, you know, it's it's a thriller because they said horror. Somebody said, like, you know, don't like horror doesn't uh, win awards. And so therefore, don't, you know, <laughs> give it don't don't say it's a horror film because horror films aren't. I forget how the person said it, but it was really like, dude, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's, it's just like you're spouting nonsense. Uh, but I mean, this I mean, it's not only a great horror film, it's a great film, period. It's the last film to win the big five awards of the Oscars. But whether or not it won Oscars or not doesn't take away from it being an exemplary exercise of the genre. OK, so, I mean. I think you've convinced me. I'm not just rolling over or anything, but I trust your judgment much more than my own on this. I guess the reason that it's not so much a horror film for me, or maybe maybe it's just not a traditional horror film, is because it does focus so much more on Clarice and yes. maybe you know maybe my opinion would be different if I had seen the Halloween films, which seem like you say to focus a little bit more on. Um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character but in this one to me it's a lot more about her obsession with you know Buffalo Bill and Hannibal Lecter so m- more so than it is the you know violent delights of Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill it's not action driven it's a character driven story which is why right, right. it is so great because the conflict the um, anxiety, the tension, it's all driven from character relationships. And that's that's why it's terrifying. And I love exploring the relationship between Clarice and Hannibal because there's a mutual respect there. And, and I like it. She sees something in Hannibal Lecter that nobody else can see. And you know what? He sees something in her that nobody else has seen either. And he helps her to to overcome those internal obstacles in you know sending her on you know on this chase even though he knew all along who the serial killer was right yeah all right so what is your number three film then number three is another Wes Craven film and it is the precursor to Scream it is the first meta horror film as we understand meta and the genre 
And this is the playground for Wes Craven, which would later give us Scream. It also includes my favorite icon, Freddy Krueger, and it is Wes Craven's New Nightmare, 1994. In a town where movies go over schedule and directors go over budget, something far more evil is out of control. suffered its own terror today as two of Hollywood's best-known special effects technicians were found dead. Part of the theme of the movie is becoming like part of the making of the movie. Okay, this is another one that I unfortunately have not seen. Yes, uh, <laughs> new, uh, before meta horror became so commonplace to the point that this once innovative concept has become all too cliche, uh, Wes Craven wrote and directed his triumphant return to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Although he would, he did co-write Dream Warriors uh, back in the 80s, which is Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Uh, this this film is not only made for horror fans, but for general audiences as well. This is also a film that is highly regarded by the late Roger Ebert, and he was known for not liking horror films <laughs> in general. But this is one that he gave four or five stars. Like He ranked it incredibly highly. Uh, New Nightmare is a horror film within a horror film that successfully dances that line between reality and fantasy. You know, one can liken that to the very character of Freddy Krueger who exists in our dreams but can inflict real pain. It's a fascinating parallel. Uh, Craven's approach uh, to this iconic franchise, uh, you know, begs the question, um, uh, asked of the horror filmmakers within the movie whether the effects of the story on screen cross over into the real world, affecting our actions and thoughts of just those of us who love to watch horror films. And just beyond the very meta nature of New Nightmare, there's a self-reflexive element in the plot because our story, the lore, uh, the the movies of Freddy loop, you know, back in on themselves. And we have Bob Shea, you know, who was the head of New Line Cinema. We have Robert England, Heather Langenkamp. They are all playing themselves. And including Lynn Shea, who most people nowadays know uh, from the Insidious franchise, as well as uh, other uh, other horror movies, uh, Lynn Shea, and Robert England would actually co uh, co star together in 2001 Maniacs. Uh, in the uh, uh, was it in 2001? I think it might have been in 2001 when when that came out. Maniacs. Uh, yeah, two thousand. It's called 2001 Maniacs. And so you have all these people playing themselves. That's great. You get to enjoy them as the actor, but they also reference their characters. Uh, Heather Langenkamp references the movies in the franchise, not just <laughs> the ones she's in. So that makes these movies feel all the more real. So while other franchises, you know, force a reboot or a revival in order to bring back an, uh, an iconic uh, uh, horror uh, franchise character, 
you know, by way of, you know, chalking the return up to being superhuman, resurrected, supernatural, with little to no reasoning, New Nightmare is different. New Nightmare provides evidence, albeit supernatural, for why Freddy's films need to be made, why Freddy has to come back. Therefore, um, Freddy would come back in not only this one, uh, but he would come back in Freddy vs. Jason in 2003. And so uh, so we we have to have these movies. And in order to get a, a better understanding, uh, I, I suggest watching Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Uh, but mm. that that's what, that's what I love about it. It's uh, it's uh, it's a brilliant film. We uh, get a lot of um, you know, there's a lot of different uh, psychoanalytic ways to analyze it. And Freddy is scary again. You know, Freddy was scary in, in Nightmare One, Nightmare Two, Nightmare Three. It's a little bit of Nightmare Four, but then after that, <laughs> really trails off and becomes super campy. I've only seen Freddy's Dead, the final chapter, or not final, whatever Freddy's. Freddy, is it Freddy's Dead final chapter? Whatever it's Freddy's Dead. I've only seen it a couple of times because it is horrendous. <laughs> and so so he's back to being scary again. So it was another great way, much like Scream 4, finish Scream off on a high note. New Nightmare finishes A Nightmare on Elm Street off on a high note as well. And I, I'm hoping uh, we get one more uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie with Robert England. He has said in recent press conferences that he's got one more in him. So he's challenging New Line Cinema, uh, uh, owned by Warner Brothers, to send him a script uh, because he, he's got one more. And we, we, all, uh, we all want him to come back because uh, we need Freddy in our lives and in our dreams. So I hate to ask the same question twice, but as someone who is like candidly probably not going to watch six or seven nightmare movies or films. <laughs> um, is this one of the ones that you would recommend? And is this one that is required or, I mean, is this one where it's kind of required to see everything that has occurred before it? Sure. That's a great question. I would start with the original. I, uh, I like two, but you can skip two. You could go the original three and then this one. So, uh, mm -hmm. but you really do need to watch three to appreciate this one more, uh, because of Heather Langenkamp's character, because she references oh, okay. the movies. And so as Heather Langenkamp, she references the movies. So it's important to watch one, three, and then new nightmare. You, you can, you, know, you can skip the rest of them. <laughs> okay. And there, this says, this is the seventh one. So there's really, is, is there more than seven? Well, there's eight if you count Freddy versus Jason, which is more of a Freddy movie than it is a Jason movie. Um, okay. And then we don't count the 2010 remake. It doesn't exist. Listeners doesn't exist. OK, Good so it's um, <laughs> so, yeah. So you have eight if you count Freddy versus Jason. OK, so it's it's interesting that many of the films on your list are sequels or kind of reinventions of an original character. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason for that? Do you think that you you kind of get drawn to knowing the character and then liking it when it's kind of turned upside down a little bit or what is that that's a great question i can't say i thought about it before but you know what you're right and i uh really i i'm i'm at a loss for words to be honest because <laughs> i never really thought about that before um but i guess the short answer would be uh yes i'm very much a character person I mean, just like in dating, you have ass guys, tits guys, dick guys. I mean, you got, I mean, that's what, that's, you know, that's why you're, that's <laughs> what you look for, you know, me in, uh, you know, uh, whomever you're dating. 
And so if we were to not to be crude, but to use that as a parallel with these movies, I, I you would say that I'm a character guy. And so that's that's what attracts me to a movie. I'm attracted to the characters. I'm attracted to the plot. I don't give a rat's ass about the technical marvel of it all. I, I want <laughs> characters. I want plot. And so perhaps that is why many of them are sequels or reinventions of earlier uh, franchises, mm-hmm. turning them on their heads. I like how you put that. Uh, because uh, what attracts me to a movie is characters. So do you find it that you're more attracted to the villainous characters, like you really like when there's a good villain versus a good uh, main character? Oh, definitely. Okay. Uh, I think uh, horror is built upon, I mean, franchises anyway, are right. built upon their villains. I mean, they they are the face. They are the brand. Uh, Jason's the brand of Friday the 13th, even though, spoiler alert, he wasn't the killer in the first one, everybody. Yeah, I watched Scream. I, I learned. <laughs> so yes, uh, yeah, we do. We do. Re- we uh, we learned that the hard way. Yeah. So um, so yeah. So I mean, that is face. Michael is the face of Halloween. Freddy is the face of a Nightmare on Elm Street. These franchises are built upon their villains. So yes, that is what I look for. I want a villain that I can cheer for, and that is my biggest problem with the 2010 uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street remake is uh, because of because of how they changed Freddy's origin, not massively. They just tweaked it just a little that made it difficult to really root for him. And hmm. uh, because Jackie O'Haley's performance itself is fine. I think Robert England does a better job, but Jackie, there's, there's not, it's not a bad performance. I just couldn't really root for him in the same way that I root for Robert England's Freddy. All right. So I'm going to move on to my number three. Ryan's number three was Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Um, My number three is Misery from 1990. You almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs and the fibula in the right leg is fractured too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Well, everybody sure likes those misery books. They had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours. The misery novels. You must be a good man, or you could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery Spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you, man! So this is a film that I actually had no idea existed until, geez, like two months ago or something, where it was just kind of like casually mentioned at one point. Um, this, of course, is the film that lives and dies by Kathy Bates' performance. If you haven't heard of it, um, it's the one that won Kathy Bates the Oscar. In 1990, she plays Annie Wilkes, who is a obsessed fan of, because this is a Stephen King 
book. Of course, the main character is a writer. She kind of like kidnaps the writer after he has been in a car crash and kind of recuperates him in her log cabin and he's bedridden because his legs are broken and everything like that. And I think in the hands of a less capable actor, I think Kathy Bates's character could have been very cheesy and overbaked, but I think she does an excellent job at being just off hinged enough to be believable and sort of not terrifying for a little while until she becomes very terrifying. Um, and the thing I really like about this film, something that I think we also talked about during Midsommar, is that it takes place mostly during the day. So instead of a lot of films la- that kind of terrify with the unknown, this one just kind of omnipresently disturbs. Like you're never off because there's always something going on. He's always stuck in the cabin. Doesn't matter if it's light or dark out. She's still there and you have no idea what she's going to do, how he's going to get out of this situation so it's a never-ending sense of dread it pervades the film without ever you know without anything ever overtly terrifying happening on the screen with the you know one obvious exception i'm sure uh you've seen this correct ryan oh yes and in fact it almost made my top five list it was so very close okay i um I, uh, I, I I felt bad that it didn't make my top five. It is an honorable mention for me. And in fact, I showed the hobbling scene to my screenwriting class on Monday because I rank the hobbling scene as one of the most disturbing moments in not only horror, but in film in general. It's one of the most disturbing scenes that you will ever watch. Yes. I mean, it would certainly make a top 10 list. It just unfortunately did not make my top five, but it is an honorable mention and and your and the Kathy Bates performance is outstanding, mind-blowingly good. And another example of horror winning an Oscar. And this is one this is uh one year prior to Silence of the Lambs. Right. So this was uh you know, it was you know, perhaps this paved the way for Silence of the Lambs to be taken a bit more seriously. Misery is very Hitchcockian. Rob Reiner studied Hitchcock's films, much like Brian De Palma. So when you watch it, it is almost as if you could remove Rob Reiner's name and you could put Hitchcock's name and you would believe it because it is shot in a very Hitchcockian manner. And it it was successfully translated to Broadway. Bruce Willis uh, played. um, Yeah, I heard about this. Yes, it, it was it was it was it was great. Have you seen it? No, um, I just seen footage of it on YouTube. Ah, I wish okay. I could have seen it. Wish I could have seen it live. I forget who played Annie Wilkes. It was uh, Laurie Metcalf. Oh, see, see I, I would. Um, that, 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 that's right. So uh, it's, it's great. It takes place largely in one room, and when you can drive up the tension that high in one room, you have a brilliant story. Yeah. Um, fantastic characters and i don't re-watch it as often as some of these others that's kind of where my list came from is which one which what typifies 90s horror which ones do i find mm-hmm. the most rewatchable and i do rewatch misery just not as often as the others but i i love misery uh i like to talk about kathy bates your portrayal in fact i did a whole character analysis on uh annie wilkes for my women in horror month back in february and so she was one of the characters that I explored deeply. So if you're interested in a, a character analysis of Annie Wilkes listeners, you can visit my blog and uh, uh, click on the Women in Horror link. And then you will see uh, she as well as um, uh, Clary Starling, uh, Nancy Thompson, and Ellen Ripley. Those are the four women that I uh, did character analyses of for Women in Horror back in February. 
Awesome. I will provide a link to that and I'll actually read that as well. It seems really interesting. Um, the thing I really liked about Annie Wilkes is that she has, you know, it's a good slow reveal of her history, but she doesn't have an explicit, you know, backstory. Like you see things that she's done that shows that she's a psychopath, but there's no like flashback to her, you know, being abused or whatever. And I think on set, uh, Kathy Bates had some sort of like, you know, fabricated history for the character and everything that kind of like put her into the mindset. But mm -hmm. uh, she's almost like a, a Joker-ish sort of character, you know, until, you know, uh, last month or whatever, but where his the history is just kind of unknown about this character. And I think that that makes it more effective because you don't really know what this woman is capable of doing. No, not at all. It's a, there is the the audience is left with so much doubt and there's such an expectation of trouble around every turn. Yeah, and especially the the one scene of James Conn's character Paul Sheldon moving throughout the house trying to figure out a way to get out while she's at the, you know, at the town getting paper or whatever. That scene is just masterfully tense. I watched this film alone, but I was still kind of doing that adorable thing where i was like yelling at the screen like dude get back in there or come on yeah. let's let's move it let's move it um, yes. and so when a film makes me you know yell at the screen like that it shows that i'm very much engaged and Brilliant. i think that the film has a great ending um i don't know how much the reception of james Kahn's character was received in this film but i was pretty surprised that his performance is very not surprised i mean he does this a lot but it's a very quiet performance and mm -hmm. throughout the entire thing, he's kind of calm and collected instead of the, what I would do, which would be like, shit, 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 <laughs> what's going on? I'm freaking out. Yeah. Um, and I thought that that added to kind of an even larger sense of dread throughout the film. Definitely. When you just think about this situation, like it is, you know, even they didn't have to rely on a lot of horror tropes, like jump scares or anything like that, no. because just thinking about that situation is terrifying like being bedridden like you're reliant on this woman who is crazy and she could kill you at any given moment and there's nothing you can do it's it's i really enjoyed this movie <laughs> uh hitchcock would say uh much like he said with psycho that uh the horror was transferred from the screen into the minds of the audience mm. yeah I agree. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> definitely, if you haven't seen Misery, check it out for at least for now, the way I saw it was on the AMC app. So uh, I did unfortunately have to have commercials in the middle of it, which kind of sucked and sucked me out a little bit. So maybe I would have preferred to fork over the $4 to rent it, but it is free for people with a cable subscription. So I would definitely recommend Misery. Excellent. Ryan, what is your number two? Uh, number two, and the last one that I get to talk about, because my number one, as I mentioned earlier, is Science of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. So number two is uh, another Wes Craven is Scream. And this is also my number two. So oh, oh, here we go. Good. We can uh, both talk about it at the at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, I mean, what it's like, what can we say about Scream that that hasn't been said. It's one of those uh, films that needs no introduction. I use that opening scene uh, in my screenwriting class to illustrate how to truly hook an audience. Not only is the prologue one of the best, if not the best openings to a horror film, it's one of the best openings to a film, period. It hooks you in 
for the rest of the ride and tells you exactly the kind of movie that you're about to watch. And much like uh, uh, Hitchcocker and the moniker Master of Suspense, I honor Wes Craven with the moniker Master of Horror uh, as he redefined the, uh, the, the horror genre with Scream, as I mentioned, with New Nightmare, a lot of meta stuff there, a lot of self-reflexivity. That was his playground. This is where he went full Craven and really drove home this concept of meta horror. It's uh, not only popular with audiences, it was critically acclaimed uh, when it came out. And you'll find very few people who don't like Scream. It's got one of the most brilliant, shocking you know, openings. It's got a brilliantly shocking ending. And just like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Hitch pioneered uh, so much with Psycho, Craven pioneered a lot with Scream. And uh, he borrows uh, not only from Hitchcock in terms of his approach to the genre, but he also borrows from it just in concept alone. Hitchcock killed off Marion Crane within the, the first, uh, is it half hour? I'd have to go back and watch. Well, within the first half hour of the movie, maybe even a little bit less, he kills off Drew Barrymore, 90s America sweetheart, within the <laughs> first 10 minutes of the movie. And uh, you know, still to this day, it's it's a terrifying opening. And there's I, I could go on and on about Scream. I, I love what it did. I love what it added to the genre and redefined it once more. It was at a time that horror was not doing very well. It was really kind of going downhill. But this brought in that new energy that it needed. Um, this also contributed to parodies like uh, Scary Movie. Uh, and so we have parody and slapstick dark comedy based off of it. You can even characterize Scream as a dark comedy in many respects. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, uh, it's this approach, which is why this is uh, an innovative film and continues to entertain us to this very day. And much like I mentioned, uh, my uh, thing that draws me into movies are the characters. I mean, this is very much a character-driven story. The focus is on the characters and their relationships and exploring horror as a genre, exploring those tropes. It's not this violent movie that our parents warned us about. You watch it now and you're like, really? It's, I mean, granted, when it, when it delivers, it delivers. Right. But it's not a movie frocked with violence the entire time. It's not a gore fest. It, I, I find it is an extremely, you know, classy way of exploring, you know, the, you know, exploring the genre in a new way. Scream 2 is much more violent than Scream Oh, 1. yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's a couple of things that I really liked about this film. The first one was, yeah, that opening scene very quickly tells you that this is a movie where, like, the rules are very different than in our real world, but they're also different than in a traditional horror film and that kind of jarring sense of is this you know is it a little cheesy am i to be taken seriously like for a little while i was watching the film like is is this film supposed to be funny i i can't quite get a grasp on it like am i supposed to be laughing um at some of these things and i i think the answer is yes i mean you can correct me if i'm wrong but it's really interesting that this film is both scary. I wouldn't say it's terrifying or uh, horrifying, but it is scary while also being just pretty funny and pretty silly. Um, and one of the things that this film does really well, I think, is it just oozes 90s. Like everything yes. <laughs> from the way that people dress, the way that people talk to each other, the way that the musical cues swell up when two lovebirds are talking on screen, just... <laughs> 
it's like, oh my God, I'm getting hit by like a 90s school special <laughs> or something. And then even the uh, the credits, the credits are yeah. so, I, I almost thought like full house music was going to play or something. <laughs> with, like, <laughs> um, So I, yeah, I really liked it and it gave it that kind of silly, campy, but still gritty feeling yeah. that I thought that this film just felt like, I mean, again, I haven't seen a ton of horror films. But this has never, you know, I didn't feel like this was anything like what I had seen before. No. Um, when I've uh, been asked uh, from uh, different people, like, what film defined a decade? Mm. Uh, when I think of, uh, you know, the 90s, the, um, if we're a horror specifically, uh, I would say that the, the film that defines uh, 90s horror is Scream. Like that, if I could summarize the '90s up in one horror film that best represents the decade, this is the film that I select, which is the poster child horror film of the '90s. Yeah, I also really like that the fight scenes are very scrappy. Like, oh yes, Ghostface always seems to have a plan, and it doesn't quite go well. So this guy gets beat up a lot. Like, uh. He gets punched in the face, he gets hit by things, and that's not something that you normally see in horror films either, which I thought was really fun. No, it uh, I loved it. It's just uh it's great and I I I at least watch it uh once a year and because really? it's yeah, I I really do. I just uh I I like it that much. Same with uh, all these films. I I tend to watch them once a year and uh, awesome. regardless of the time of year because they're just uh, they're very special to me. And because they they really not only, you know, I think are a good um, representative of the decade, but are fun. I think that the 90s horror uh, was fun in a different way. 80s horror was also fun, but we uh, we we chose to have fun differently. And I think for the movies that we have mentioned, it worked very well. Absolutely. The one other thing that I thought was pretty interesting about Scream, and we can jump to the my number one um after seeing joker i thought the idea that these guys were trying to imitate the horror films or I may mean, i guess i just sort of spoiled the end of scream sorry but um <laughs> there are two guys that play or that end up being ghostface and um they they claim that their you know motivation is that they kind of want to imitate the the horror films that they've seen. And it seems like literally every character in this film watches nothing but horror films, which I think is pretty funny um, <laughs> coming from Wes Craven. And I think that's really interesting in light of all the Joker controversies and everything like that. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know, you know, I haven't quite cracked what the film is trying to say about that, whether it's just, you know, satiring that like, Oh yeah. You know, this wouldn't ever actually happen. People don't do this really but then at the same time you know this is a couple years before columbine um mm -hmm. where they at least you know claimed that uh, it was doom inspired or whatever so yeah. i i think there's something there to this film that um it, you know it's not just satire i think there's this media consumption and this media sensationalism yeah. within gail weathers character who mm -hmm. courtney cox love her from friends so yes always great to see her in a film <laughs> I like what you I like what you mentioned there. And, and yes, I was very young at the time of Columbine. But I, I do remember that Scream got brought up I mean, they brought up video games, too. But I do remember yeah. Scream getting 
uh, brought up. And as an adult watching it, like, why, you know, I guess perhaps, you know, we could parallel this with the satanic panic of the 1980s. Mm, And so, uh, you know, maybe uh, if we look at it through that lens, then we can see how uh, perhaps this was perceived by our parents. Because I know my parents would, I mean, they did not let me watch this. I mean, I huh. they didn't let me watch a lot of horror. I, I, I did watch horror all through my childhood and, and, and young adulthood. I grew up with watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Twilight Zone, Are You Afraid of the Dark, Goosebumps, Jaws, uh, Jurassic Park, which I would uh, argue is uh, sci-fi horror. So I certainly, it's not that there was an aversion to horror, but, uh, and, and Jurassic Park didn't make my, my nineties list either simply because I didn't want to get into the argument of, uh, you know, act, you know, of <laughs> like sci-fi movie with horror elements or is it a sci-fi horror? So I just for sake of simplicity left Jurassic Park, uh, off of my list. Cause I think it is a very special animal, uh, that requires a, um, that requires a different conversation. Good pun. Thank you. So, um, so yeah, I, it's, I, I, I think it's, uh, I, I find horror films, I mean, film in general, but specifically horror are films that are a reflection of our reality. And it allows us to see things differently that we may not have seen before. And in terms of people who love horror, I can tell you this in a somewhat facetious manner, but I am far more afraid of quote, normal people than I am uh, <laughs> horror fiends. I really am. Yeah. The horror fans I know are some of the most intelligent, grounded people that uh, that are a part of my circle of influence. And, and so it's really the people that have an aversion to horror. Those are the people that scare me. I can always trust a horror fan, but I am not entirely sure that I can trust somebody who doesn't like the genre. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good that I'm starting to like it so that you can start to uh, trust me now. <laughs> So I'll move on to my number one film, which is Seven from 1995. Do you like what you do for a living? These things you see? You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I'm going to inside five years. Not here. Now, they're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. Oh, so good. So good. <laughs> so also how I like to call it uh, is uh, seven and because yes. that's uh, how it's stylized. Um, so this is the David Fincher film. This is another film that I would kind of characterize more as a thriller with horror elements. But the reason that it's number one on my list for 90s horror is because, yes, it's an excellent thriller, but I do think that there are some genuinely and truly disturbing and terrifying imagery and moments in this film. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, seven is uh, is one. I have three honorable mentions. And so 
I seven is another one of my honorable mentions. So you've got actually got to hear two out of my three. And so uh, and seven, I, I, I just finished analyzing it um, in my screenwriting lecture a couple of weeks ago. Um, so, oh, wow. uh, it, yes. So it's one that I definitely enjoy. And I yes, I do characterize it as a horror film. And awesome. there are terrifying moments in this movie and an interesting factoid, too. If I were to ask you, what is the most famous line from the movie? What would you respond with? What's in the box? What's in the, of course, I mean, most people would. This is what's interesting. Even in the director's cut or producer's cut, whatever they call it, uh, we do not see Gwyneth Paltrow's head in that box. People will swear yeah. up and down that in the director's cut, we see Gwyneth Paltrow's head. But if you go back and watch it, the theatrical cut, director's cut, we never see what's in the box, but there's this um, uh, collective consciousness that because we have heard you can see Gwyneth Paltrow's head over and over and over, we start to believe that <laughs> you can see her head in the box, but you never actually see it. It's like in um, Empire Strikes Back that Darth Vader does not actually say, Luke, I am your father. Like that's a made up quote. It's something like, no, I am your father. Precisely. Uh, same with in Breaking Bad. He never says science, bitch. That is <laughs> a thing like that people just made up. Yeah. Science of the Lambs is the same way. We we never actually hear Hannibal say, hello, Clarice. He says, good evening, Clarice. But he doesn't say hello, Clarice. He does say it, I believe, in the sequel. He says, hello, Clarice. Yeah, it's, it's so funny that that happens. Um, but... Yeah, I didn't also, like, I haven't rewatched this film. I've only seen it once. So my memory is, like, a little hazy with it, especially with mm-hmm. the plot, uh, like, the kind of different plot beats. But there are those distinct images that I will probably never forget. Like, just the man tied to the bed, starving to death. The man whose stomach exploded because he was forced to eat to death. Like, yep. that's, it's all so messed up. And I think this is one of the only films that, like, truly um expresses the sense of smell mm-hmm. in a way that was just yeah. revolting to me um precisely yeah it's it's fantastic film um you know it's obvious it's david fincher so he's got meticulous direction brad pitt morgan freeman trying to si- find a serial killer there's like really nothing that you can't love in that yeah and the relationship between them is such a focus too that's a it's another reason why this movie works so well where does most of our conflict come from? Most of our conflict is not between Kevin Spacey and our detectives. Most of our conflict is between uh, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt's characters. That is the central conflict of of the movie, and it's just kind of incidental that they are you know searching for the serial killer. But uh, most of our drama is derived between uh, that relationship uh, between the two of them, as it's iron sharpening iron, so to speak. Yeah. So just an all around great film. With great performances, everything. There's really nothing that I don't love in this film. So that's why it is number one for me. All right. So with that, uh, let's just list off our top five again. So for me, it was Scream 2, Silence of the Lambs, Misery, Scream, and Seven. Yes. And uh, my top five, starting with number five, I know what you did last summer. For Halloween H2O, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Scream, and Silence of the Lambs. And if I just uh, I, I uh, know where uh, 
nearing the end of the show, but we, I mentioned two of my honorable mentions, which is Misery and Seven, which was funny because they are both on your main list, which yeah. I think is great. <laughs> so, uh, But my other one, my number one honorable mention is John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. And we don't have time to get into it, but it's also based off of a Stephen King uh, book. It uh, also has uh, Sam Neill uh, plays uh, plays a uh, plays our central character. So I uh, definitely want uh, want listeners seek out In the Mouth of Madness. It's a brilliant John Carpenter film. It's not incredibly well known, but it should be. It's uh, mostly known by a lot of indie and obscure horror fans. But I think uh, every uh, if you love the horror genre, definitely seek this out because I wish I'd known about it before earlier this year. It was I was introduced to it by my friend Leon in Germany, and uh, we watch a movie together every week, and so we take mm-hmm. turns introducing each other to films. And this is one that he picked out, and it's it's one that I absolutely loved, and it's it's disturbing. It's beautifully shot. Uh, it's, uh, has a lot of psychological horror. There's some visceral horror as well. Um, it's, if you think about, um, Stephen King and Twilight Zone, if they got together, this is what, uh, this is what you would get. So that's all I've got to say on it. Uh, but I definitely <laughs> listeners seek out John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Awesome. And the one other film that I binged this week that didn't get on my list was, um, the Blair Witch Project. Oh, yes. I did not love, and perhaps some other time we can talk about maybe why, but sure. I will just say that, <laughs> um, yeah, didn't make my top five. I'm surprised that neither of us have mentioned um, The Sixth Sense either, which is something that I've obviously seen, but um, didn't make my list. So No, didn't, didn't make mine either. It's uh, It didn't make mine because you know what? It's not really rewatchable. It yeah. is brilliant the first time through but it loses a lot of its power upon rewatch and that's funny because it didn't make my list because i knew what the twist was going into the movie so the first time i saw it (laughs) it just was like oh okay all right so this has been our decade marathon episode of 90s horror Ryan, thank you so much for joining me again. I would love to have you back anytime, and I hope you have an awesome Halloween. Um, It's coming up in two days now. So I think I will do my very best to get this uh, edited and published on Halloween night. So um, is there anything you'd like to plug? Sure. Uh, Your listeners can connect with me on my blog at rlterryrealview.com. That's real with two E's. You can also follow and connect with me on Twitter. I'm at rlterry1. If you are uh, in uh, Florida uh, this this week, if you live here or you're coming to Florida this weekend for Spooky Empire, the dark side of Comic-Con, a great horror convention. Uh, If you're going to be at the convention or you just live in the Tampa Bay area, uh, come and see me. I'm a panelist at Spooky Empire this year, along with the podcast Something Ghoulish. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So we're going to tackle the question, why horror? It's an exploration of the evolution of the horror American horror film and what it teaches us about society and ourselves. And we're going to talk about why horror brings us together. And so I'm honored with the privilege of being a panelist at Spooky Empire. And I'm glad that I can uh, connect with uh, another podcast, uh, Something Ghoulish, who's uh, one of their uh, hosts is in Orlando. So he's just up the road from me. And so we're able to get together together. 
and um, host this panel. So again, if you're coming to Spooky Empire, plan to come to my panel. It is Saturday, November 2nd at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in room 9. And if you just happen to live in the area, Tampa, Orlando, St. Pete, you know, Sarasota, and you have some time this weekend, come on up to the convention. I guarantee you'll have a great time. Uh, you can sit in on my panel. You can also meet Bruce Campbell. Elvira is going to be there. So it's going to be a fantastic uh, weekend at the convention. Awesome. And I just thought I'd ask you this uh, now that kind of award season is starting to swing in. What film are you looking forward to most for the rest of the year? Ooh, uh, rest of the year. Well, I just finished uh, watching The Current War and Lighthouse just mm-hmm. uh, just Monday night. Uh, so those are two that I was uh, looking forward to. Uh, coming up for the rest of the year, Knives Out, uh, Doctor okay. Sleep, uh, Terminator Dark Fate, uh, which is uh, this week. Um, let me see what else. Uh, Little Women. And I can't think of any. Oh, uh, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. So I think those are the five that I'm looking forward to most. I haven't ranked them in any way, but those are the five that I'm looking forward to. I cannot wait for Dr. Sleep. I was completely sold on it from the first time that I saw the trailer. <laughs> so uh, it's a, it's it's one for horror. And it seems like Knives Out. I mean, it's a who it's it's definitely who done it, but it's going to have some horror elements in there. So I'm going to enjoy that. But it's very clearly a who done it, and we don't get too many of those. And so I uh, the preliminary reviews are in. It's outstanding for Knives Out. So super excited for yeah. that one. And I think it'll be funny if Tom Hanks gets nominated for Best Actor in Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, uh, and Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood gets nominated for Best Picture. However. Won't you be my neighbor? The right brilliantly outstanding, can't say enough good about it, uplifting documentary from last year was completely snubbed at the Oscars, which had all of film Twitter up in arms. So I think if you pulled <laughs> most of film Twitter, 80, 90 plus percent of everybody was like WTF, you know, Academy. This is the documentary that everybody's been talking about for six months since it came out in the summertime and it doesn't even get nominated. Yeah, and so I, I think that uh, it'll be kind of funny if this movie gets nominated, but the documentary did not. I mean, funny in a uh, kind of cruel, ironic way. Yeah, I, I'm i pretty excited for the Oscars this year. I think we'll have some interesting stuff. So yeah, we definitely. will see how that goes. Um, the intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at MovieMarathoners.Podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And as always, any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when we run through TBD. Um, I'm hoping to get something out for Ford vs. Ferrari because I think that looks awesome, and I can't believe... There's has not been a film with uh, Matt Damon and Christian Bale in it. So I'm very excited. Yeah, it looks it looks great. And uh, a couple of friends of mine are big car enthusiasts. And so that that's one that they're really looking forward to. Uh, I, I you know, it's not in my top five, 
but it's one that I am eager to see. I've, if for no other reason, those performances. Yeah. So, um, but for car enthusiasts, this is, this is going to be their, this is their wet dream movie <laughs> this Oscar season. Cause it's, it's all about cars. I was talking to my friend about this and I, we, we were both like, wow, this looks incredible. This looks so fun, but we would never watch a race in real life. Like no. never. So <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it's uh, as exciting as it sounds. So until then, bye. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotas, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.